easier to, to pursue a um, Diego in 1991 with an English degree and uh, got a job at the newspaper and I started covering comics, you know, as, as, as a freelance gig. And uh, I, I covered Comic-Con every year and Jim Lee's Wildstorm Studio was the local studio. And uh, I got to know him and uh, after, uh, after like a year or two or three of me interviewing them every year, they kind of knew I knew comics and they uh, hired me on as an assistant editor. And then I became an editor and then DC bust, and suddenly I was a DC editor. And uh, it was about a five year period total. And I, 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 I put out about 200 comics and, uh, you know, got to know how comics were made and, and got to meet people and, and make friends. And I'd always wanted to write. So in um, 2001, I took the plunge to be a, a freelance writer and I've been uh, writing ever since. So you've been both sides of the the, the kind of the divide. There, you've been an editor for a while. You've, you're now doing the the writing side. Do you? Yeah. Well, even more than that, the uh, I, a designer. Uh, the, it, there was points when it was hard to get writing work, but I was getting lettering work. Oh. So I've yeah. lettered, I've done design, I've done production, I've edited, I've done, I've done everything but actually drawn a comic. <laughs> all the, the parts of the pie here yeah and that's nice yeah so and it, someone who used really to be an editor oh, sorry there's a delay on my side that's uh, i'm not trying to talk over you john sorry carry on okay. it, it it helps because you know as a letterer i know exactly how words can go on a page or a panel which Sometimes writers don't, you know, they'll, they'll write a ton of words on a little panel and then an editor has to come back or a letterer comes back to him and says it won't fit. And uh, between being a letterer and an editor and a writer, it's kind of the perfect synergy of knowing you know, how to do a page. Yeah. Well, I was looking through the, the Chew uh, script book that you put out for, I think it was actually one. So I was looking through that earlier on, and uh, like you know, I don't really know much about how a comic is produced. Obviously, like I, I appreciate them and whatnot, but I've never actually had to write one. And I'm looking through it, and I see that as you're saying there, like you're a, a letterer as well, so you know exactly how many words to put on the page. Growing up, like my favourite was uh, Chris Claremont. So when you look at the amount of words he puts on a page, <laughs> it's oh, uh, you know, that it was a different time then. You know, I, I, I think yeah. the storytelling has changed and it's a little more artist-driven now. Does that mean that, like, see, when you were kind of writing, Definitely. does that mean that uh, your personal opinion, or, well, for me personally, I feel like Chu has a very kind of quick, fast-paced dialogue. Do you think that kind of helped as you were a letterer, so you knew how many words you could fit on a page, so you knew how to set a scene in as few, like, few words as possible? Yeah, but also, as an editor, you want as few words as possible. <laughs> Unless, because... Um, want the art to guide the story you know you don't want to get bogged down you're not reading Dostoevsky you know <laughs> that's one piece that. so it's really a matter of finding a balance and weird when when a novelist gets his first his or her first comic book gig they tend to overwrite you know people who come from other industries they don't really understand that the the picture really is worth a thousand words Does that so see how you're talking about how the idea of obviously kind of being an editor and then kind of coming up through kind of Wildstorm and, and, and doing stuff like that? Does like editing someone else's work feel like it has its own kind of almost burden to it? Yeah, yeah. You you learn a lot from because because there's no one way to read a to, to, to do a script. So um, you learn from every other writer. You might be like, oh, I like how this person does this. I'm going to do this. And you even learn from bad writers and bad scripts. Uh, I mean, yeah. there is one thing I took from a bad writer. He, he wasn't a good writer, but he did one thing well. And I took that. And then there are other things you're like, well, I want to do that. You know, that doesn't work. And here's why. So it, it um, 
editor, you kind of have to go in very analytically and, uh, you know, look at how the sausage is made. And then once you're a writer, it really helps because you've, uh, you, you've taken the class, you know, you, <laughs> you know what goes on behind the scenes kind of thing. Yeah. So with that idea of obviously you're taking these, like kind of you take your own kind of opinions and stuff off of uh, kind of other writers and kind of almost kind of, I would, would you say you maybe apply it to your own work and stuff like that? Just, just before I kind of add this. Yeah. Because like I said, there is no one standard way to do a comic script. Yeah. So everyone does it differently. So you're reading Grant Morrison and, and Mark Miller and Kirk Busiek and Alan Moore and, and, mm. and everyone does it differently. And it clearly works for them, so find a way that works for you. So, speaking of the different ways of how to obviously kind of write a kind of a book, or like, uh, you know, such as an Eisner Award-winning uh, series such as Jew, because I'm going, to, I'm going to keep saying that, because oh, it's it's such a great book. Oh, but <laughs> um, You kind of said in the past that you're not a fan of people you asking how you came up with the idea of Chew, because it kind of just gestated in your mind. Because I don't have a yeah. good story. I don't, yeah. You know, I don't know where my ideas come from. I, you know, a type of writer who will segue into some clever story that they were sitting here and something happened and the idea came to me. But but ideas tend to be kind of torturous for me. <laughs> so whatever, whatever I went through was probably agony that I don't want to relive. So so so. You were in your study one day, and a cannibal came flying through the window, and then you realised that criminals are afraid of cannibals, and so you would write a story about a cannibal and not as Batman. 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 So rather than the idea, but what, what caused you to put all these kind of like crime and sci-fi and cannibalism and bloody murder and aliens and cybernetic chickens and stuff? Like, where did, where did all those ideas piece together almost? Rob, did they come at once? Rob and I, Rob Guillory, yeah. the artist and I, are very similar in that uh, I think we get bored easy. And if it was just one straight thing, I think we'd get tired. Like, if it was just straight crime... Uh, uh, Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips can do that, and they can do it better than me. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I tend to throw more stuff in just to keep myself from getting bored and, and let the story go in crazy directions, just the, the way my mind thinks. You know, I don't go in it, saying it's it definitely be a does that. that. What's that? Same with you were saying. The story go in different directions like it definitely does that it's uh, it, one of the most insane and funny things that I've ever read like I absolutely love it uh, and I wanted to ask you this was like just me like the only question that I've really got like Massimo has got like a whole bunch of questions which I also for, for years now what how feel like to be the guy who came up with the best oh, that's ever been put on the page and by that I mean Poyo that's <laughs> funny because Chew was very planned out and then Poyo just took the world by surprise and everyone loved Poyo and uh, uh, oh, it's so good I put him in and uh, it's almost like ratings would spike you know like having a special guest star like uh, you know Poyo stole the show but it's every every issue where like they would just go not Agent Poyo somewhere else, and then there was like a two page spread of Poyo versus uh, like a like uh, Escargot or or whoever, and it was just I was always looking forward to that. Just that those little asides were were perfect, uh, and then I, I know Massimo hasn't quite finished the book yet, so I don't want to spoil it like where it goes with, with that particular character. So. Uh, I will. I will. I will. I, will, I was going to say, right? You're going to throw me the bus in front of the writer. No, I. I really have been enjoying it, but I've been taking my my time with it because obviously it's a finished series now. So I really like to take my time. How far are you, if I if I may ask? Uh so I am about. I think I want volume seven of twelve. A bad thing happened, right? 
Yes, the bad thing. Yes, the bad thing happened. Yep, yep, yep. That 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 was when it was funny because the sixth arc was really. I knew the bad thing was going to happen, and it was it was very light and fun and happy, and people are like, Chew has kind of lost its teeth, and it's like, no, I'm just suckering you into a false you know a false security, and then I'm gonna you know break your heart, and that was um was really the standout for me when i could do that which was a really hard thing to write yeah uh all bets were off i was gonna say because obviously in that kind of volume six of the kind of paperback uh, and of kind of that arc like choose most of it completely out of it he's completely unconscious after after arc five so how does how do you take a character who's been the main character for five arcs so far and then completely spin out his head where he's basically hospitalized like how how like did you did you know you were gonna do that and be like the, yeah? It was part of the 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 engine the, the fun and it wasn't that hard because uh, we had such a good supporting cast you know mm-hmm. it, the, the the supporting cast ordered the book with while the lead w- was out of it for a while and that's uh, sort of I guess spoke to the strength of uh, of the cast. It's not a lot often, yeah, yeah. That's what I was gonna say. But that that was a little bit ballsy to, you know, remove your lead character for this Mm -hmm. thing. But you really needed to get invested in the sister, and so you know, yeah, yep. And then you gut punching, heart rushing. (laughs) Oh man! Like, so obviously that like Chew is like obviously a big part of your writing career. It's like sixty issues long. Um, it's got kind of 12 volumes, you know, several different, you know, ominous version, omnibus versions and the kind of charcuterie versions that exist as well. The, the kind of the smorgasbord, as far as. Sequel right now, right? Or yes. Yeah. A, 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 literally a sister book. Uh, uh, the sister who was not mentioned in the first mm-hmm. because she didn't exist. Uh, the criminal sister who was in prison at the time. And we're following her as as the food criminal. It's a uh, it's a guy named Dan Boltwood, uh, who's a who's a Brit. Nice, we love that. Just gave me. We did we did an arc. I know COVID kind of messed both of us up, and we took way too long to get the second arc. Um, solicited next month, and. Uh, gave me pencils on issue seven and the second arc's even better than the first arc so it's nice. it's fun to be rolling again i i will i will get around to that as soon as i finish the main series of chew because I, i've been really enjoying it so far and i don't think my enjoyment's going to stop um and and speaking of the idea of because obviously you said you kind of you swap swap creative teams a little bit uh with the the new uh, kind of the, the other series, I guess it's also called Chew, so it's like, um, <laughs> like you kind of swap creative. What was it like working with and kind of creating Chew with, is it Rob Gilroy, um, for 60 we issues? Had a, like, really good re- relationship, and, and I struggled to find the same relationship with other artists because Rob and I communicated a lot. We were both on, um, you know, chat server and we would text a lot, and, uh, would bounce ideas back all the time. Dan Boltwood and some of the other artists I work with, they want a script and to go away. And I'm uh. used to sort of having a, almost like a best friend that I'm like <laughs> chatting with every day. So it, it's, it's definitely, you know, different. Um, thing is Rob Guillory was a really hard worker and I'm kind of lazy, <laughs> but would, to a point where he's on like you know page 15 and i'd realize well shit i've got about a week i can't leave an artist without work so rob would keep me honest you know he would work so hard and so fast i would have to work hard and fast to keep up uh, uh i kind of need that because an editor and writer i've learned that the cardinal rule uh, the absolute most important thing is you never leave an artist without work you know, if an artist if if an artist finishes an issue and they don't have a script, you have screwed up, and it's completely your fault. You're taking you're taking bread off your artist's uh, table. You know, they got to feed their family and pay their rent. You have to have script for your artist always. 
the lava. So you, you worked with Tony, eh, Tony, I'm reading the character's name here. You worked with uh, David Gallery for 60 issues plus the, the kind of one-shots and whatnot and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Obviously, you've done a bunch of work for like Dynamite and IDW where you were doing uh, like uh, like film tie-ins and not tie-ins, what do you call them? That's terrible. Licensed products, uh, they're called. Like, Licensed properties, thank you. The words would just would not come there. So you've done like Xena, you've done uh, Army of Darkness, you've done a whole bunch. Red Sonia. Is it like working? You know, going from like that kind of thing to your own stuff, or or, or back the way? Like, kind of, what do you prefer? They both are fun. Like, like with you, you're you're inventing the wheel, and you're you know you're playing God. Uh, but it is harder to invent your own world, you know, for writing Godzilla or Xena or Mars Attacks. I'm kind of just being a fanboy and getting paid for it. So, you know, I'm, I'm getting paid to write, you know, sequels to stuff I like. And you don't, you don't have to build the world, but you have to follow the rules a little more. Like, you know, Xena can't suddenly, you know, kill and eat a bunch of babies uh, but you you know you you, want you're a professional, them, right? you know that take you know going in you know you're you you do justice to the character for the sake of the fans i feel that's a very diligent way of writing um and it yeah and it definitely carries over in your work yeah sorry you go alan sorry the dream must be to work on Star Wars then, right? Like, see, that's the one that brought you into this whole industry? That, I have a bucket list, and Star Wars is continually on it. But I, that, that's one I haven't been able to crack yet. Right. Mr. Mouse, list make is, this happen. Uh, like, come on. Yeah, uh, I, I want to do Star Wars. I want to do Archie. I want to do They Live, the old John Carpenter movie. Oh, great film. Uh, oh, yeah. oh, be a phenomenal... Oh, yeah. I've had a bucket list. I'm looking up at my, my bookshelf now. And, you know, I've written Godzilla and Mars Attacks and Army of Darkness yeah. and Judge Dredd and Aliens. Like, these are all my favorite things. And, uh, like, to like say... Because I grew up on, on Judge Dredd you know, trying to get 2000 AD stuff over in, in, in the U.S. And, like, to finally get to write Judge Dredd was just such a thrill. Like, that must be one of those iconic characters. Like, I say you've, you've probably wrote on a, several of them that, like, when it comes to that, you might, you might have to take special care handling them because they've got these, like, well, such I mean, big pre-established histories. Like, even with... Yeah. Fan. yeah. And I know, like the brass ring for a lot of people is superheroes and yeah. like it was fun to write spider-man and batman but like it's equally fun to me to write godzilla like to me if you don't own it it's a licensed property like they don't consider batman li a licensed property but it is all, all superheroes are yeah um so you know you're just getting to play with someone else's toys and uh yeah it's a lot of fun but at the end of the day it's not yours and and there is a satisfaction to the fact that people like my chew stuff is 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 the greatest feeling because that's a hundred percent mine. You know, Batman's zero percent mine. So you, you you talk about obviously create your own stuff, and you recently wrote uh, the man who after time. For Aftershock, uh, a review which is available on the BGCP website by yours truly. I'm just going to plug myself while I do this. Uh, and and what was it? What was it? First of all, what was it like working with them as a publisher? And also, what was the decision to go for a time travel story? Well, I I've worked with some. Sometimes you work for my. Sometimes you work with the for the characters. Sometimes you, you work to work with friends. And uh, the editor at, at Aftershock, Mike Martz, uh, was the first guy to give me work at Marvel. He gave me uh, Batman. I've been friends for like 20 years. And sometimes he's like, hey, you, you got anything for me? 
And it's like, yeah, I got this, you know, goofy time travel thing with a, a great title. And he's like, tell me more. And so end of the day, that was really just an excuse to like work with a pal, you know, do something fun that, you know, I own or have a stake and, uh, you know, get another book on my bookshelf and work with a friend that you trust. Well, you were saying there about it gave you Batman, which was going to be the next thing I was going to ask you. Sorry, uh, you worked on Batman Eternal. Obviously, you've done a, a fairly long run on Detective Comics as well, but you did 20, 21 issues or something on Batman Eternal. What was it like working in the kind of writer's room as opposed to, I take it you would normally work on your own in that regard? It was not for me. Uh, I, uh, oh. I tend to be a bit of a lone wolf and, uh, and you know, some, a, a page would come in and every single writer would have to like comment, Oh, this looks great. You know, and it would like, I would get 50 emails a day and it was just like, uh, yeah, that sounds and a nightmare. I like all the guys and it was interesting, but like I work, most comfortable working by myself in a cave you know no one talked to me nobody bothered me and this was the opposite of that and uh actually left eternal i was uh i was falling behind on chew and again cardinal rule is you don't leave your artist without work and you know batman's great but it'll always be there and if i screw it up i i you know i screw up my gravy train that's mine so I had to pick between Batman and Chew, and uh, and I went with Chew. Good call. Yeah, I was going to say, right choice. <laughs> it wasn't an easy choice, and a lot of people, like, that. there are people who I won't name, who can, you can probably figure out, who have abandoned their creator-owned books for the steady paycheck of, you know, Marvel or DC. And that's their decision, but, like, I, I'm an indie guy first and foremost, and there is no superhero that means more to me than my own book. It's, I'm the same way. Like, obviously, I don't write that, I read them, but uh, what interesting to read your work on Chew or Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips' work on Criminal, just because we put them up earlier, than it is uh, Ed Brubaker on Captain America, which I loved, but he's he's definitely constricted there what you can do like you said it's someone else's toys you're playing with right but it's, you can do anything you can you can go anywhere it's better i don't know if you've been following this story that was that's hit where ed's not really getting paid for yeah talking about a soldier and, and you know the the disney is like i'm sure he made some good money on captain america uh and i made good money on batman but chew and criminal is a very small pie, but we own the entire pie. Yeah. You know, Batman, Captain America is this yeah. giant pie that you get a few crumbs of. I, I it must be like in, incredible though to think that you have this legacy almost that exists that that you now have like like basically Chew is like a cult book. You know, same as those cult films that come before it and stuff like that. Yeah. And how does it feel almost being like like one of those kind of like like a, almost a John Carpenter esque figure in comics where you've made this uh, made this book that is kind of like I never consider a cult classic. I mean, it's it's cool, and the the, the good thing is like Chew continues to sell. Like even four years after it ended, I'm still getting checks, which <laughs> that's perfect. But on the <laughs> other hand. Oh, you're the guy who wrote that great book that ended four years ago. And, you know, you, you sort of have to, like, look at, like, well, I don't know that I'm ever going to do anything bigger than this, you know? So you just got to keep trying with, to keep doing stuff you like, uh, recognizing, I don't want to say you've peaked, but <laughs> maybe commercially, you're not going to have as big a hit as, you know, you have had. Can I... Obviously, speaking about stuff that is you try to make that's kind of more recognisable and stuff like that. Um, I got I got the chance obviously because um uh, we were given a bunch of your books to uh, read and review before we can review, so we're kind of versing your stuff. And uh, one of the ones that really caught my eye 
was Outer Darkness. And oh, you're gonna break my heart here. I know, I know, I know. This is the thing: is that Outer Darkness? I I was reading it, and I was like, okay, sci-fi. How's it gonna do it? And then I read it, and I'm like, oh my god, this no, was, uh... yeah, this book is like it's so much more than the surface. And I feel like, and if you don't mind me saying that, because of like almost the like how it looks like a, every other sci-fi book, but the story is so good. And so diverse and so different from anything else, so subversive, uh, subversive even. Like I feel like, yeah, like it was. It, honestly, it was a great read. Sorry, I don't want to cut you off, but yeah, I just. Yeah. Was the book like that was supposed to outdo Chew and be better than Chew, and like that was that was supposed to be the book that I was remembered for forever, and uh, it didn't even get an ending. Uh, it, it honestly could have been. Because I read the first volume and like obviously I know there's one more other volume to read, but I was hooked and I feel like I, I totally agree with you. And obviously because it's, it's by Skybound and stuff like that, which who I was reading into it and the way it works is they own the Outer Darkness. Yeah, so you, you couldn't even continue if you decided to want wanted to, which is which is the sadder part of it. So, you know, it was a lesson learned. I... I actually kind of thought I was doing them a favor. Like, hey, I'm bringing you my next big book. But, you know, Chew, you want to talk about big pies and crumbs. Like, Chew nothing compared to Walking Dead. Uh, and so, you know, sort of in the scope of their empire, I was just, I mean, they liked the book, but it was just another book. And when they pulled the plug right before COVID lockdown, it um, it really hurt. Like, uh I would have at least liked them to say, hey, you know, one more arc to wrap things up and uh, just didn't happen. So, you know, can't win them all. Sorry to bring up painful memories, man. That yeah. Is, uh... I mean, it, it, it would, uh, I was in a fetal ball for the first half of, of quarantine, just, you know, saying why, why, why. <laughs> and, uh, like the new Chew book has sort of helped, um, drag me out of it but um i think i'll ever like whatever my next big big book is it be with image central so i can do it on my own terms there you, you go know, if, we'll do small self-contained things with aftershock and idw but but if you want to be the master of sort of your own domain and, and call the shots you gotta go with image central because uh work a lot harder but you have a hundred percent control of uh what to do hmm. i don't want to bring up more painful memories and and hopefully hopefully this won't kill you even more john is that obviously i know alan alan's giving me all the looks um with and i really hope this, this isn't pretty much is obviously so chew was touted at one point as being an animated tv show with uh, yeah uh that died and then there was another deal that nobody ever heard of uh, that was behind the scenes. And um, it died. And I'm actually glad it did because it was so terrible that I was actually rooting against. Wow. I was I was afraid that, that the network was going to pick it up and I'd hate it. <laughs> so could uh, anything else happen? Should there be another mm. deal in the future, Rob and I will be heavily involved this time because I'm never going to risk someone f***ing it up like the last people did. Being said, I can't talk about it right now. Okay, that's entirely fair. Yeah, yeah. Wink, wink. Wink, uh, wink. We love that. Hollywood yeah, uh, people are always circling. Uh, for stuff, especially you know, with the boys and Invincible, that's yeah, uh, Umbrella Academy. That's one of the things I was going to say was is, is was the idea that obviously so Chew, yeah, being such such a big, massive book, and obviously Invincible with obviously Stephen Ewan at the front of as as, as the main character could have been released. That now more than ever is maybe the time where Chew could definitely or be on the cards in my opinion. But for yourself, say the idea that like. Hollywood circling looking for these great animated or even live action uh, comic book shows that are subversive and different. Well, completely agree. Now more than ever, <laughs> I learned a lot of lessons from the past, and that's all I can say right now, other than, yeah, you know, 
stay tuned. Stay tuned. We love um, that. One thing that that is is not a painful memory right now. Ooh. And I can only say this question happy. <laughs> Bit of that. Well, uh, you haven't heard it from us first. You definitely haven't heard it here in any capacity whatsoever about. <laughs> There's always things percolating behind the scenes. Like I said, there was there was a deal that went on for like three years after the cartoon, and then it it fell apart, and uh, and I learned some valuable lessons from that. And that you know that's the thing about comics: you're always going to make mistakes, and things are never going to turn out the way you planned. You just try to not make the same mistake twice. Probably good advice for. For any walk alone, it it really applies to comics. And I feel like it's sorry. I don't do that to cut you off, but like I feel like I said, like the idea, like you you like learn all these lessons through comic books, and you learn all these lessons that kind of apply to other aspects of your work. Like, is there like? And obviously, we talked about it a little bit earlier on about the sentimentality that maybe exists with your work, the kind of the smaller pie, but it's all of yours. Does that apply to kind of maybe other stuff that you would work on? Like, say, for example, if you got to create like a, a TV show or like a novel or whatever, would you feel like like those things hold the same value? Well, A, I am a comic book writer first. Everything okay. else is on the, like, all I've ever aspired to be is a comic book writer. So the other stuff is, you know, gravy. But, I have worked. Um, I've worked in video games, and uh, as a writer, and there's, you know, video games cost millions of dollars to make, and there's a lot of chefs in the kitchen. Like for Chew, the chefs in the kitchen were Rob Guillory and me. So we had so much control, and the bigger the scope, the bigger the operation less you know the less control you have because everyone's sticking their nose in so there's a tv show a, a, a game a movie i already know that a voice not the voice and, and there's a satisfaction to doing comics which is why i like i utter my own stuff and i like to go with people who who color their own stuff because a two-person operation is, you know, I can't draw, so that's as close as a one-man band as I'm going to get. Uh, also cheap, uh, and so splitting the money in two is, uh, you know, better than splitting the money with a bunch of people. <laughs> uh, video games there, just kind of, as you were saying, so you used to do that? How was that? You prefer comics because it's just the, the smaller team then? or The money was real good, but I would spend hours and weeks writing, you know, a cutscene or a mission or whatever, and then it would just end up on the cutting room floor. Like, it wouldn't, it wouldn't even see the light of day. And, like, yeah. I had, you know, a full-time, you know, 40, 50-hour-a-week job for a while in video games, and maybe 20% of the stuff I wrote made it into the game and never as pure as you wanted it. You know, when it's a comic book, it's it's just between me and the artist and you know, maybe the editor and depending, like, you know, case scenario, you're on a company book with an editor and an assistant editor and a letterer and a colorist and a production. Like, it's still an eight-man operation, which is a lot smaller than a TV show or a video game. Um, yeah. Uh, um, an intimacy to comics where you can really get your vision out there. But probably the only thing that's better is being a writer. I mean, like a novelist, because that's just one person. But I have too short of an attention span to write prose. I, I like I like drawings. Pretty pictures. <laughs> yeah. Same. Yeah. It must be that that is so. Like, obviously, you talk, you say obviously, like you you you're a comic book writer 
first and foremost at the end of the day you, in, your, in your own opinion so with that being said is there anyone that you you said you have kind of a bucket list is there anyone else that you maybe haven't mentioned already kind of within the normal realm of comics that you would like to work on as a writer any characters any series any kind of all that uh, well the, the the great thing about like my marvel work you know, i i have touched i don't have any marvel bucket list characters because Mar- marvel versus army of darkness like i got to like at least touch everybody uh with dc i i got to write swamp thing this year and i got to write um hellblazer you know just little eight pagers but at least i can say you know those were bucket list characters and uh yeah think of big two all i've got is maybe harley quinn and uh and Firestorm. There's a few other like uh, I got to write Plastic Man this year. He was on my bucket list forever, um, so, uh, and that's enough for me. Like, hey, I got to write a an eight page Swamp Thing Batman story drawn by Dennis Cowan. Like, that's freaking awesome. Uh, yeah. And and in terms of other creators, like a lot of times, like, the man who effed up time with uh, AfterShock. I didn't know the artist. It was a, it was a blind date, and uh, and I don't mind that. You know, you end up uh, making a lot of friends that way. You know, sometimes I bring an artist to the table. Sometimes I get set up, but uh, I think ninety-five percent of the time I get along with the artist and uh, you know come out with a friend and a future collaborator. So uh, it, it's been great. Five percent. Then who didn't you like? <laughs> I I I can only think of one instance where an artist and I didn't really hit it off, and it wasn't really that bad. But uh, you know, the, the great majority of the time is I, I I get along, and I'm just you know grateful to have somebody uh, you know drawing my words. Like, okay. I can it. Just being cheeky there. <laughs> I mean, there are channel creators who don't get along, and uh, you know, I know that there are feuds. But I, I've been, I've been real lucky, and I, I'm pretty easygoing. And also, you know, as an editor, uh, somebody might draw something that you don't completely like, like it wasn't completely what you envisioned. Sit back, and I'd be like, "Well, could ask for a change." But is any reader going to notice? Is it going to affect anybody's enjoyment of the book? And 99% the the answer is no. And let it go. You know, it's a collaboration. Not everything's going to be your vision. Um, an editor, I worked with this one one pain in the ass writer, and he'd be like, "Well, the you know the artist drew this guy wearing a wristwatch on his left wrist." And this guy is more of a right brain guy. I think I think the wristwatch should be on the other wrist. And I'm like, dude, I'm not gonna ask for that sort of change. No reader is gonna care, and all you're gonna do is piss off your artist. You know what? What is the point of a stupid change like that? And uh, and that's a very extreme circumstance. But you know, sometimes you don't get what you expect, and you you, you know, unless it affects. My advice is to live with it. You were saying there about uh, not kind of pissing off your artist. I, I always go back to when you see uh, things written about Jim Shooter and John Byrne, and when John Byrne jumped ship to DC, and he, he, he was it Guy Gardner basically murdered them. The artist, he's going to tell you in his book having something really bad happen to you, so it just doesn't make sense. It, it's it's different for corporate comics because they're so connected now to, like, movies and TV and, you know, talk about a lot of chefs in the kitchen. Like, mm-hmm. I feel sorry for any Marvel writer right now, uh, you know, because they have to, like, uh, use all these masters. The, the the master of all Mickey Mouse, just yeah. <laughs> well, well, that must be kind of like a kind of a, a freeing experience as someone who has worked like kind of in writers' rooms and kind of worked in independent comics. And you know, w- with that being said, is there anyone who maybe kind of inspired your work or inspires the kind of things you do 
in the world of comics or kind of as a writer? Like, is there any way you could pinpoint as like maybe when you were younger, like just not even just specifically like pro as we talked about Star Wars and stuff like that, just writers who were like, that's the kind of thing I want to be writing. That's who I want to write like. Oh, I don't think I ever wanted to write like him, but um, uh, I, I, I really like, I think Warren Ellis is my favorite comic book artist. I mean, uh, writer. And, uh, you know, I got to work with him on Planetary with John Cassidy, which is, you know, an absolutely brilliant book. And, uh, you know, to read Warren's scripts and, you know, I'm a, I'm a Warren Ellis fanboy, you know, first and, and foremost. And, uh, you know, not, not everything, but, you know, if, if, if it's got his name on it, um, I tend to check it out. And uh, I, I didn't, his career necessarily but but there's there's certainly been times where i've looked at him and you know i want to be i be my own type of warren ellis if that makes sense like being the um obviously being individual but also kind of being having that same kind of iconic nature to your work is what you can can i can rattle off probably a you know, four or five writers who who want to be Grant Morris in the worst Grant Morrison in the worst way. <laughs> they yes. they rip off Grant Morrison and like they end up just writing Grant Morrison light. You know, I never tried to write Warren Ellis comics because there's already a Warren Ellis, and frankly, there's already a Grant Morrison who does it better than all the Grant Morrison lights. So you know, find your own thing. definitely the point of being an imitator right it, it doesn't make any sense unless you're like the best imitator in which case you're probably going to get some work through that but my I, question I th- was going to be when you, you mentioned that they're also oh, so carry on i think it's easier for an artist to maybe start off as you know a frank quietly ripoff or an art adams ripoff and then sort of find their own style but uh, I think when a writer does it, it's 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 way more, I guess, obvious. And uh, I I just feel like a writer should find their own. Yeah, I mean it's it's kind of hacky is maybe the way that, that people would look at that. Isn't sorry, you're just taking the best bits of him and making something. So why bother? We'll go and read his stuff instead. Yeah, yeah exactly. artists they find their own style over time, and it's fine. Well, look at somebody so like uh, Ryan Sook, who Ryan Sook has had his own. He, like there was a time where he really was like you know, Mignola style, and then he has found his own style, and you know he he is utterly brilliant. There there are different artists like uh, who are clearly. Um, like inspired by quietly, uh, like uh, like Nick Patera and my my man who effed up time artist uh, Carl Mostert and Ramon Villalobos and uh, but they've all kind of like started with Frank as kind of like their their ground and then they go off and find their own thing and it it's fine to show your influences just don't um, completely rip somebody off. Yeah, don't be slavish to them kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. We, uh, I'm trying to, Frank Miller obviously started out with a kind of a more traditional style, but over the years it just became completely his. And now you've got folk imitating more of that and kind of going their own way with it. But uh, yeah, it's, it's not, everybody's progressing. We were talking about this the other day with artists and uh, John Romita Jr. has moved back to Marvel from Image. I've had arguments with the, the years about how they just go, oh, I can't stand his work. And I'm like, guy wrote or uh, drew some of the best X-Men stuff way back in the days. His Daredevil with uh, Frank Miller was unbelievable. Like his yeah. stuff now, but it's just, he's evolved and it's not your taste. That's uh, also Nothing stays the same, right? Fledgling comic book readers don't kind of appreciate 
there are certain people who are brilliant, but you it takes a while to see it. And he's one of these people, like, if you know comics... Yeah, Kelpie. Uh, there's some people who give it a superficial look. They don't like it so much. Do you think that's an issue with comics nowadays? Is that for a lot of readers, because obviously there's so much going on with, like this event, this reboot, this, that, or the other, whatever crisis on whatever, this, that, or the other. Do you think that's an issue that people kind of suffer where they kind of, they get hooked in by, like, a big event, and then when they go and branch out and read older stuff, that then they're maybe not as appreciative of previous sure, artists and creators? Sure. Yeah. No, the Marvel and DC, I, I feel like, is sort of a gateway drug, and they're kind of, you either get stuck eventually give it up or you evolve into better stuff. And, you know, those are the lifetime readers, the people who like you know, started with, with these things, but then learned that they're not necessarily going to get a bang for their buck, you know, spending $90 useless event. Um, and, you know, it's better to follow a creator than it is a publisher or characters. You'll, you'll get more satisfaction ultimately. Yeah, Plus, um, uh, Massimo, you're obviously like a like a, a Batman guy, right? I I like my Batman, yeah, yeah. It, it's uh, yeah. I'm I'm more of a Superman boy, but yeah, I do like my Batman. Okay, right. Like, so back in the day, I was X Men. It was X Men, X Men, X Men. That's that was all my my stuff. If Chris Claremont was writing it and it featured a mutant, I was reading it like that was my stuff. Nowadays, the get excited about DC stuff like there's like the occasional books like uh, Ram V's Swamp Thing I'm really really excited for and things like that I'm more interested in what's coming out for Dark Horse Image Freedom to do what DC you will always have some good stuff but the people uh, buying every Marvel comic or DC like you can't even afford to you know you can barely mm -hmm. afford to buy every Batman comic in one month there's so much yeah, for me personally, like, I, uh, I, like, I'm quite a younger. I'm, I'm a, f a few years younger than Alan is, and and I'm, I'm like, kind of like, I'm not fairly new to comics. I've been reading, <laughs> I've been reading since I was like, kind of like six, seven years old, like you know, Spider Man and all that stuff. But as I've, I've kind of gotten older, like, I, I totally agree that like these independent studios and these independent, it's when I say like a creator or a writer, an artist is the way to do it because the comics are such a there's such an issue with it's almost like they're too expensive to get into as a hobby like like i, I yeah it's it's a problem because like trade waiting is much more like as a writer i want you to read my floppies because mm -hmm. that pays my monthly power bill and you know puts food on the table but in the long run the real money is you know in trade trade paperbacks you know i i make much better money from having 12 volumes of you know chew than you know from individual issues in the long run but you have to get to that point um, i don't know how you do it being a, a mainstream big two guy because uh it's like it's like swimming against the tide you know it, it never ends and as soon as you paid all the money for one event there's another event and uh you know it's you know 25 books you gotta buy so are you yeah. are you a big fan of unless I don't know this is a weird like a weird kind of, a kind of tying question are you a big fan then of stuff like the MCU or kind of what DC is doing like these kind of big like of like kind of team up comic book movies and all that stuff are you are you not like no oh, I've, got a, I've got a 14 year old <laughs> and so you know watch all the Marvel stuff together you know we'll sit down and watch Captain America and you know the Falcon together I mean uh Soldier. It's too long. We've 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 had this conversation a lot of times in our podcast group. Is the the name of that show is way too long for it to be. Yeah, like I like I never I didn't watch Zack Snyder's Justice League. Like I already know I'm not gonna like it, and that's not for me. And uh, so I don't slavishly watch everything. You know, uh, I watched WandaVision after the whole thing had aired where I could just binge through the whole thing because it, it kind of annoyed me and uh, I didn't want to wait week to week. Uh, I don't know if I think I'm more of a casual fan of that stuff. 
but it, it's a lot easier to pay six ninety nine for Disney Plus than it is you know to buy twenty Marvel comics at five ninety nine. I'd I'd much rather buy Donny Cates' crossover than I would you know, whatever his Marvel books are. Jeremy, I've lost the same, you. Definitely. Oh, you guys were cutting out for a while. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> I was going to say though, but like all that, like I do saying, like you're only paying, you know, six ninety nine for Disney Plus or whatever, or you know, your Netflixes with whatever series is on there, like Super Wars, like Umbrella Academy and stuff. Um, the fact that obviously we're kind of living in this world where everything's digital and stuff like that, and and as you said, you're talking about the idea of like floppies versus paperbacks. Do you think it's a step in the right direction for stuff to go online through like services like Comicsology as a writer, or is it more for you? You'd prefer people were kind of going single issue uh or is... I, I you know i'm an old guy and <laughs> i didn't really believe in digital comics but i'm watching my royalty checks and uh i can't deny that it's a force and a factor and i would say about a third of my comic income is now digital so digital, you know uh, you know i i don't care how you read my books you know, I don't care if you trade weight. I don't care if you floppy. I don't care if you're digital. Like, uh, I don't really love the pirates. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm just happy you're reading the book. So, uh, you know, I don't care. You know, I don't care if you buy the hardcover. Like, that, that's the thing. Like, I tend to be the guy that when I find a book I love, I buy the most expensive, oversized hardcover I possibly can. Uh, uh, but I think there's so many options of being a reader that anyone can, you know, read a comic the way they want to. So the right answer. Just for a second there, wasn't sure if you still had me. Uh, Cut in and out a lot out. Yeah, sorry, I've got a really bad connection. It's a... It's almost dial-up bad. Like, that's how bad it is, so I'm sorry. Massimo, take it away, man. No worries. I was... Uh, honestly, with that kind of uh, being said, with how you're talking about... It does not a right way to read a comic. Um, I, I, have to, I have to obviously applaud you. Um, because from what I've read so far, like... You seem to have like whenever you're you're uh, writing any comics or whatever, whether that be Chew, you know, Our Darkness or the kind of the new Chew series, like you seem to always manage to like have like a diverse cast of characters. Um, and I feel that that's something that like how do you come to the kind of the gestation of a character in your head? So obviously like it, the most of the, the Chew being in uh, you know Asian American stuff like that, and uh, and Colby being you know kind of like part of the kind of LGBT community. And stuff like that. Like, how do you come to those ideas for those characters? Is it just something kind of naturally, or do you kind of like put the effort in to make sure that like everyone has someone to relate to in the comic? Well, I, I, I don't specify. Like in Chu, obviously, like his family, yeah. you know, was Asian, and it was funny when Chu first came out in two thousand nine. I was meeting with Hollywood people, and they're like, "Well, you know, we like this, but Asians can't sell." You know, we. We might have to make him Tony Chuinsky and, you know, and and like both Rob Guillory and, and my head exploded. And <laughs> things have come around so much that like, oh, you've got an Asian lead. You know, that that's that's awesome. I think it helped like uh, Rob Guillory is a black guy. And, uh, you know, um, I wouldn't specify race. So he would just kind of naturally, you know, unless it, there was a real story point. You know, he would just kind of draw faces, you know, different types of people. And uh worked with uh, the Canadian once, and he drew everyone white. And I don't, I don't think he meant to. I just think that the, the area he lived, that's all he saw was white faces. And eventually I had to tell him, you know, hey, man, mix it up a little bit just for... <laughs> You know, just for the sake of things, you know, I, I, 
I know, you know, your little province in Canada is probably pure white, but the rest of the world isn't. White is snow, <laughs> just, just the small part of Canada. That, because I've been doing this for a while, and I think, uh, I think comics has sort of caught up to it. And, like, when Chew first started coming out, like, there, there was a real big Asian readership, and they were happy that they weren't, like, you know, martial artist or like, like Tony's just a dude yeah. that happens to be Asian. Like, like, uh, you know, so many Asians are either like mystical martial arts or mystical, you know, whatever, or martial yeah. arts that like have, it was kind of refreshing. And, and so many people would come up to me at cons and just be like, you know, thanks. And, uh, as I sort of realized as a, you know, as a fat white guy in a black t-shirt, you know, there's a trillion of us in comics anyway. So let other people be seen. And, uh, and it, it makes a big difference. To me, it's again, white guy, the whitest guy in the world, kind of going a bit red, obviously, but, uh, I don't understand folk getting upset over, a little bit of diversity, inclusivity. It's it's nice to see something that looks a bit more like the real world out there on the page, rather than you know the everything looking world, as if it was made in nineteen sixty two. The real world is getting less white, and and like I didn't understand it either because like okay, there's okay, there's a, a girl Wolverine now, or there's a black Iron Man. It's like some of these people were getting so pissed, and it's like. Stark's still there, you know. Uh, Logan's yeah. still there. It's just this is just another option for people. Like, it's not erasing like the character from history entirely. It's not completely wiping them off the board, wiping them off the map. It's just adding to the mythology of the character, right? I like I completely agree. Where it's like, like I said, it's it's more about the real world and. And um, and Chu does like a phenomenal job of of having like lots of satire and and there's some there's some nice kind of bits and pieces of kind of parody of kind of pop culture in there like there's some definitely I saw some of those, like some of the issues I was reading was like definitely inspired by pulp, pulp fiction some of this stuff kind of yeah kind of Tarantino our, films Tarantino issues like you know our, yeah. our homage covers there was one point I have a super fan in Los Angeles. And she was going to a speaking engagement where Tarantino was going to be there. And we had a cover coming up, which was another parody cover. And she wanted to show it to, a, to him. And I'm like, do it. <laughs> we ran the last one because it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Mission, yep. So don't bring it to his attention. <laughs> you know, maybe cool, but maybe his lawyers aren't. Or maybe so, the executives of Brothers or whoever, whoever produced the film or whatever. Um, the fan, like you know, I appreciate what you're trying to do, but this could conceivably cause trouble. Please don't. <laughs> so this is what I was I was just going to ask you about as well, because obviously we we kind of touched on it earlier how there's the new Chew series coming out. So the world of Chew is something that I I from what I've read has so many different avenues to go down, and I looked into it as well. I spoiled some of the stuff for myself, which was uh, unfortunate, but it was the you know necessities of of having an interview. Um, does it feel like like the world of Chu can keep going for like for like a long time? Do you feel like it's something that you feel like you would be happy to continue and, and just new cats and new facets of this world, or is there an so, obvious endpoint? Something, something I didn't kind of because I pitched Chu a lot and nobody wanted it, uh, which is why I ended up doing it myself and and I own it and that's fantastic. But things about Chu that that. Um, I think sort of made it as popular it is, is the, is the universality of food. Like chew in 12 different languages and I don't care what culture you're in, you know, what part of the world, like you can relate to a terrible meal. You can relate to a delicious meal. You've, you had food poisoning. Like everyone has to eat and like one can relate to chew on some kind of level. So, you know, first book was, Yep. is food criminal and uh and you know um it's weird because uh once i figured out chew was a a food comic book like it became like this like impossibly deep um 
canvas to work from because it's part of every single human's existence. Thus, uh, go on for hours. People are eating. Yeah, I was. I was gonna uh, speaking of the idea of like all these like making a food based comic book. Did the idea of like Tony Bean is uh, the pronunciation is like chi- a chiopath or a chibapath? Can never never pronounce it properly. Like, but all these kind of like different food based abilities. Did they kind of gestate from Tony being this one particular thing of hmm, what if a guy could sense where foods come from and then what happens if he has flesh and then what happens if this happens and or did they kind of like did you all have this idea of like you want to include these tropes of you know like the idea like of a vampire yeah, and a stuff bunch like of that. different ideas like I I had like a little like idea binder that seemed kind of dumb on their own <laughs> and then I realized I had like a bunch of them that were food and it's like oh why don't I just combine them and again as soon as I I figured out you know food comic it became this rich thing and the and the stories just keep coming and uh, uh so choosing in 12 languages and i spent a lot of the last few years before the plague traveling uh to different shows like uh as a writer you know i'm selling 10 15 trades like if you're an artist you're doing hundred dollars of commissions and you're coming home with, you know, loads of money. If you're a writer, you don't make that much money. So if going to a con, I would rather go to Glasgow than Detroit. You know, I'm only going to make a few hundred bucks anyways, go somewhere and exotic and experience new things. So one of the things to the new chew comic, uh, you know, uh, the first Chew, Tony Chew's adventures largely largely took, took place in America. Because I have to keep the separate, sister separate, It's a she's going to be an international criminal. Ooh. So I'm going to have her, every arc, she's in a different country. Which is, you know, fun for me, and it's fun for my, my foreign publisher. Because I get to set them in countries that publish Chew. Well, that's also, you know, believe me, I'm, I'm thinking about that. Um, I think our biggest foreign publisher is our, our French publisher. So in in the next Chew arc, uh, the sister, Saffron Chew, goes to Paris to, uh, to steal expensive wines. Oof. And, uh, you know, I fully expect a trip to Paris in the future when the book comes out in, in, in France. So... Uh, also, it just makes it fun. Former you know, who, who good food as well. So. Yeah, who doesn't want to be an international criminal? Let me write about yeah. Rome and Italy, and let's also write about this really nice place. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> uh, so I think you know we've had we've had you on uh, long enough, John. It's been a, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, would you? Uh, let me pimp a couple things before that's, I go. Yep, that's what, that's what I was just about to ask you. If you've got anything you want to recommend, anything you want to plug, just whore them out wherever they are. I've got, definitely slowed things down. I've got two books coming out, and they're both coming out on July 21st. Uh, uh, we've got the, the new Chew arc, uh, which takes place in France. Chew 6 through 10 starts in July. And then I've got a... Um, a new creator-owned book called Bermuda uh, with Nick Bradshaw coming through IDW, and it's kind of a it's kind of a commandy Tarzan book, and and the art is just staggering. Uh, and it, basically, everyone who goes through the Bermuda Triangle in history ends up in this island, and it's a it's a teenage girl uh, finds a castaway from our world, and she's showing him the ropes in this island populated by dinosaurs and pirates and black magic and uh it, it's ya like i'm not writing it for kids but it's it's all ages appropriate coming in july from from idw and it's uh supposed to come out a couple of years ago and it was delayed be, you know because of covid but it was really because uh the art is so um staggering uh, you'll understand why it's taken Nick Bradshaw a couple of years to do four issues. I mean, it's it's next level stuff. Sold. And like, other than what that, was it called I'm again? Working on. It's 
Bermuda, as in the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah, Other than that, I'm working on some stuff that I can't talk about. Of course. I hope, I hope becomes uh, um, public soon. I hope it becomes public within the next couple months. And uh, if you guys ever want to talk about it, I'm happy to. Of course. We obviously have you back. Yeah, we absolutely don't have you back whenever that unspecified thing that you we absolutely know nothing about is going to be coming out. Um, <laughs> but uh, thanks so much for joining us, John. So uh, thank you everyone for listening to the BGCP podcast uh, interview special with John Lehman. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at BGCP uh, Comic Con and also with Twitter with the same uh, handle, as well as on the BGCP website where you can find all the latest news, reviews, and comic book news. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, John, and everyone have a great weekend. Goodbye. Good me. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Disassembled. You can find more news and reviews on BigGlasgowComicPage.com. And don't forget, you can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube as BGCP Comic Con. Make sure you also subscribe on your podcast provider of choice for new episodes every week.